The reckless love of God is incredible. And really, as we find our way here in Romans chapter 6 today, we, we are seeing what this reckless love has provided for all of us who are in Christ. And it is absolutely incredible. Um, we serve an amazing God, and I'm, I'm sure thankful that you're all here this morning. If you're here uh, for the first time, we want to welcome you. We're glad that you've come this morning. I hope you feel welcome here and feel loved here. Um, I hope more than anything else that you experience the Spirit of God as He speaks to your heart this morning as only He can do. Uh, thank you all for praying uh, about our youth center. Um, it, it went to the uh, city this week. The final drawings did, I think, greatly in part to your prayers. So continue to pray about that. Hopefully we'll have those things where we're ready to start this project within no time. So uh, be praying for that as we see college coming up here soon and school kicking off again with all the families coming back to church and coming back to college that we'll be ready to minister to them as they come. So, all right, let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Uh, gracious Heavenly Father, we are so glad to be, Lord, in your place today that we just call this place where we worship God. We come together as a body of believers today, Lord, each and every one of us. God, are just in need of your mercy and grace every day. We thank you, Lord, that you provide that for us, that it's available to us. Thank you, Lord, for this reckless love that you have provided, Lord, toward us and for us and give to us every single day of our life. I thank you for the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made when he showed us the full extent of his love when he laid his own life down. Father, that's reckless love. Thank you, Lord, that we've experienced that and we know that. And because of this love that we have been given in Christ, Lord, we are able to love others. Thank you, Lord, that we can do that in Christ. Lord, I pray today as we open your word that you would be our teacher, Lord, as you are always faithful to do and to be. And, uh, Lord, we want to remember, Father, the Grace Church in our community today whose pastor passed away yesterday. Lord, we want to thank you that uh, we know that he's with you today, but I know there's a family and, Lord, there's a church that's mourning the loss of their pastor this morning, so we want to pray for Grace Church today, Lord. Pray that you'd bring comfort and peace to them. Thank you, Lord, for, for your love. Thank you, Lord, for the resurrection. Thank you for the hope of the resurrection. Thank you, Lord, for your amazing and reckless love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, if you have your Bibles, this is going to be our last time in Romans chapter 6. We're going to be kind of uh, closing up Romans 6 before we jump into Romans 7. You understand that when Paul wrote this letter to those in Rome, there obviously wasn't any verse numbers, nor was there any chapter numbers. It all ran together. And so we're not stopping in continuation from chapter 6 to chapter 7 or 5 and we're just rolling right on through that. And man has divided this up by verse and by chapter. But Paul's continuing his whole thought and process along the way now as he has made his way from Romans chapter 1, writing to those in Rome that had become believers in Christ Jesus, more than likely uh, through the word that was spoken through the apostles on the day of Pentecost as they all made their way there to Jerusalem, hearing in their own language. And now we know that they dispersed back home and Paul has never met these people, that he's writing to them, that they would know and understand these true, tremendous doctrines of what it is to be in Christ. And Paul has been marching his way through this amazing letter that we're able to read today that is also written to us in our day and our time. It's not written necessarily to us, but it's written for us. And we are going to gain some great insights to what it means to be in Christ. 
I'm going to start in uh, chapter 6, verse 5, and then i got a little lengthy reading here, so if you'll follow along with me, we're going to go all the way to the end of chapter 6, now as we kind of tie all this together of what it means to be in union with Christ. This is a tremendous truth. I think it's probably one of the most uh, foundational truths within all of the gospel is our union of being in union with Christ. It, It is a tremendous truth and a tremendous doctrine, and if we as Christians could ever grasp this, it will truly change the way you live your life, the way you understand your salvation, and uh, the way that you um, know what it means to be set free from sin and be made alive in Christ and, and how this all works out in the life of every believer. Starting in verse 5, Paul writes, If we have been united with Him like this in His death, we will certainly also be united with Him in His resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with Christ, so that with with Him in His resurrection, that we would be united. And that the body of sin might be done away with, and that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again, and that death no longer has mastery over him. No, the death that he died, he died once to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Excuse me. He died once to sin for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, Paul says, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your bodies to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And offer the parts of your body to Him as instruments of righteousness, for sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law, but you are now under grace." What then shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means, Paul says. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey them as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Paul says, I put this in human terms because you are weak in your natural selves, just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness. So now offer them in slavery to righteousness, leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things resulted in death, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is a tremendous doctrine, a tremendous truth. That Paul laid out a a, a A truth here in doctrine for every one of us that are in Christ Jesus to understand something that we would not have known had God not told us through the Apostle Paul. 
what he was teaching those in Rome is this. Number one, you realize as he starts in Romans chapter 1, makes his way all the way through Romans chapter 3, 4, and 5. He's teaching that all men before God are guilty, that everyone is a sinner, that everyone is in, is in uh, deserving of judgment. That all, whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Gentile, it makes no difference. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But Paul is sharing with them the tremendous truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's why he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. And so Paul is teaching them as he makes his way down through here. He begins to share with them about Adam and about what it was for all humanity to be an Adam who was the representative of the human race. That in Adam, in our union with Adam, every single person um, is spiritually dead, that we die physically, we are dead spiritually, that when Adam sinned, all humanity sinned because of this union that we have with Adam. Now, I know that doesn't make sense to us in our own minds, but the truth is, in God's uh, truth, his objective truth, that this is exactly what happened. And that's why, even from the time of Adam, or from the time of Noah to the time of Moses, there was no law given, and yet man still died because they were in Adam. And so he lays it out and says, listen, guys, for those of you in Rome, I want you to understand something. The reason all men are guilty before God, regardless of who they are, where they're from, their background, who their families are, what they do, they're all guilty before God because they are all in Adam. There's a union that they have in Adam, every single one of them. And so they're guilty before God because they are in Adam. And because of that, all have sinned. And it's very obvious. Every single person is born that way. We are born bent to sin against God. That's what we are. That's the doctrine of total depravity. That's what we believe, that every man is inherently evil from, from their birth. That's the way that they are. You can see that happen and play out in the lives of every person that you've ever seen or ever known, including your very own life. But he moves on from something that is just as powerful. In fact, it's more powerful. It is this fact that we now have a union with Christ, that the second Adam, Christ, who was the last representative of humanity, this new spiritual birth that we all who would be in Christ would be now in union with Christ like we were once in union with Adam. We now are in union with Christ because of a spiritual birth. He is the father, so to speak, or he is the, the one that is representative of this whole new person, this new birth. And that is Christ Jesus. And now for all of us who have become followers of Christ, we have this union with Christ. And Paul makes it very clear that everything that was true of us in Adam, in our union with him now, is exactly the same thing. It's true of us for all of us who are in Christ. We now have union with Christ and we are in Christ. And everything that happened to Christ has happened to every single one of us. And that's why Paul starts out here in the very beginning of chapter 6. And he makes some things profoundly stated that when in chapter 5, he says, when Christ was, was, was crucified, we were there. When Christ was buried, we were buried with Christ. When Christ was raised from the dead, we have also are going to have the resurrection as well. Not only that, the Bible says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because Christ has fulfilled every letter of the law. He did it perfectly. So we are in Christ. We have no condemnation. There never will be another moment of condemnation for the Christian before God. It'll never happen. 
It's why the Bible goes on and says things that we've been adopted into the family of God because we are in Christ Jesus, that we now have grace and now we have mercy at his throne, that we can boldly come there at any moment, any time, not because of my righteousness, but because I'm in Christ and because his righteousness was imputed to me. And now because of my adoption of being in Christ before the Father, I go right to the throne of grace and mercy and I approach God boldly as my Father because I am in Christ Jesus. It's an incredible truth. Paul says not only that, there's more. You've been given the Holy Spirit in Ephesians chapter 1 that God gave His Spirit and indwells every single believer. And it is a deposit that God is proving to you that you are His and it is a deposit that will prove your salvation one day for all eternity. And it's given by God and it's implanted in every single believer who is in Christ. It's a given. It's an amazing truth. It says that we have been what? Blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly places. I won't one day be. I've already been. I have those blessings. I may not operate in those. I may not live that way. I may not understand that. But in Christ Jesus, I have already been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Every one of them. The Bible goes on to say in Ephesians chapter 2 that we have been seated with Christ We have been seated with Christ. In heavenly places, we are seated with Him right now. It's already been done. That's where we are already. That's where I'll be one day. Jesus makes the statement in John chapter 11, 25. It's a powerful thing that Jesus says to Martha there as He's there at the funeral of a dear friend by the name of Lazarus. They are mourning the the death of Lazarus. And if Jesus would have just shown up a little earlier, she said, listen, this would not have happened. Jesus was listening to the Father. The Father had a different plan here. He was going to do something. He was going to show something about this resurrection, this power to resurrect the very dead back to life again. That old Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. Jesus comes on the scene and he comes to the family. We see Jesus in his humanity, even weeping that he is even at death, that he even has to be here, that he sees the separation of man from its loved ones and that death has been brought about because of the sin of Adam and all humanity has been plagued with this terrible thing called death and disease and all the things that go along with it. Jesus stands there. And he's proclaiming something here more than just the resurrection of Lazarus' life. He's also proclaiming the power of God to resurrect everyone who has ever been born in darkness, in death, and in sin. That God alone has the power to bring from death life from the grave and resurrect the very dead and bring forth life and everlasting life. Jesus asked Martha a question in the 25th chapter, 25th verse of chapter 11. He says, Martha, I am the resurrection. I'm not going to be resurrected, although I am in a few days. I'm going to show you something about who I really am, but I'm telling you now, I am the resurrection. Do you understand something here, Martha? I am the resurrection. I'm not just the resurrection who has the power of God to resurrect the very dead from the tomb. I can bring forth anyone from the tomb because I am the giver of life. I'm the creator of all things. I was before the world ever began. I spoke everything into existence. I breathe the very life into Adam himself. I am the resurrection and I am the life, Martha. 
Do you understand what I'm saying? Oh, I know, Jesus, that my brother will, will be resurrected one day. Jesus says, oh, oh, oh we gotta, we're missing the point here. I want to tell you something about who I am. Listen to me, he says. He who believes in me, he who believes in me, listen to what he says, will live. See, I was of the kingdom of darkness. I had no desire to seek God, no one, nothing to do good, none of those things. But what did God do? God did what only he could do is draw me out of darkness and bring me into his glorious light and transfer me from the kingdom of darkness. The church doesn't do this for you. Catechism won't do this for you. Nothing will do this for you. Only the power of God will do this for you. Religion won't do this for you. No religion will do this for you. No education will do this for you. Nothing will do this for you, but only Christ and Christ alone will do this for you. He says, I will transfer you from the kingdom of darkness, which is the kingdom in Adam. We were dead and I will transfer you into the kingdom of my glorious son. And he places us in union with the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, Martha. Do you know who I am? He who believes in me will live even though he dies. Do you know that we don't need to fear death, Christians? Do you understand that you will never die? Hold on. I'm not saying my earthly body here that's wearing out. You know, you look at the mirror and you're like the, you're like the Apostle Paul. Man, outwardly we're wasting away. But inwardly, I'm being renewed day by day. See, Jesus makes a powerful statement. It's the faith that we have in Christ that places us in Christ. That's where we're abiding in the vine. We're in John 15. We're abiding in the vine. The vine is not doing all it can do to stay plugged in. The branches are not doing all it can do to stay plugged in the vine. It is a natural thing that happens. You don't ever see a tree out there quaking and shivering just so its branches can stay plugged in to the trunk. You don't see it out there just shaking to produce an apple if it's an apple tree. It is a natural thing that happens. And listen, it's by faith that I abide in the vine. And in the vine, the branch will have life and the branch will produce fruit because I am in the life source, God the Father, through the Spirit of God living in me. It's an incredible thing. So you and I are going to wear out. And if God doesn't return, if Jesus doesn't come soon, before thy time comes, this old body is going to be thrown in the grave. That's what's going to happen. But my spirit, listen to me, will go on and live for all eternity. For all eternity. My body one day will be resurrected. God promised that. It's going to happen. It's going to be a body that will be glorified for that which God has prepared me for eternity. 
It won't be the body I have now that is falling away and that is crippled by sin and that is at war with my very spirit. It won't be that kind of body. It won't be a body that has disease anymore. It won't be a body that could ever die ever again and be separated from those I love. It'll never be that way. It'll be a body prepared for what God has prepared for all those who are in Christ Jesus. And it will be an eternal body that will be resurrected and it will be joined with my spirit and I will be with that forever. Spirit of a man never dies. The sad thing is for those who die outside of Christ, they go to a place of eternal judgment and torment, a place called hell. They're still alive. But there's a second death. It's the lake of fire. Every one of us are going to experience the first death. But there's a generation who won't experience death. Isn't that amazing? There are those that are going to be caught up in the clouds. They'll never experience physical death. If Jesus Christ was to come back today, listen, if you're here and you're in Christ, woo, baby, right now you're going to be gone. It's going to be incredible. You wouldn't experience death. So he tells her this, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? This crazy love of God that has provided for all of us who were in Adam who were born in sin, who were born rebellious against God, this God, out of his great love for us, and while we were still sinners, Christ himself came in crazy love, in total reckless abandonment, and gave his life, and he took upon our sins, and he became sin in order that I might be freed of that and get his righteousness. It's incredible. This union is an unbelievable thing. And I want you to get this. He makes a very profound statement here at the end of chapter 5, and he reiterates it again more than once as we move through chapter 6. At the end of chapter 5, he says this, At one time sin reigned in death so that also grace might reign through righteousness. He moves down into six, chapter 6 just right here um, in, in the first verse. He says, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? He says, By no means we died to sin. And then when we get over here a little bit further, it says in the 6th chapter in verse 14, it says, For sin shall not be your master because you are not under law, but you are under grace. This is something that I think is so imperative that we understand about our union with Christ. And many Christians don't understand this. And I didn't understand this for many years of my life because of what I was taught. Because I belonged to a church who taught that you could fall from something called grace. And that at any moment in my life, although I've been adopted, they believe that I was adopted as a child of God, that I was redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, that I was called by God, that I not only was that, but I'm in the process of sanctification, all those things going on in my life, that if I was to die with unconfessed sin in my life against God, that I could fall from grace and spend eternity away from God, forever damned in hell. There's many churches out there who teach that. The problem is they don't understand grace and they don't understand anything of the union we have in Christ. If you're a Christian here today, I want you to hear this. You will never lose your position of who you are in Christ. Never. It's not going to ever happen. You are held by the grace of God. You are held by the hand and the power of God. You are in his position of son or daughter and you always will be. Do you always act like one? No, you don't. People say, what about those who live in sin after they've been saved? 
My Bible tells me that my God chastises those he loves. That discipline begins to happen in a believer's life who lives in rebellion against the God who saved them. And trust me, God's chastisement or his discipline is still grace. It's to get you back in line to be who he saved you from, who he saved you for, and what he saved you to. They will always repent and come back to God. If there's no chastising by the Father, then there was no, there was no relationship and adoption. If they're not being chastised by the Father and they're living in rebellion to God and living like the rest of the world, then there was never any union with Christ. It never happened. Paul says so. See, listen, if you understand something about grace, you're going to understand why I would say this, Paul says, that you don't just go sin more so that grace can increase. In fact, just the opposite is true. He says we're not under law. Aren't you glad that you are no longer under law? Is that not incredible? Because the law, listen, under the law we are guilty. That's where we stood, condemned under the law of God. He says, no, you're under grace. The problem is, I didn't understand what grace was. I believed that I could fall from grace. And let me say something. If I'm underneath this stage, can I fall off this stage? No. If I'm under a chair... Laying under a chair, can I fall off the chair? You had to be pretty creative, right? If I'm standing next to my horse and holding the horn, can I fall off my horse? No. The only way you fall off something is if you're above it. This is the grace of God. You are under it. You cannot fall off something that you're, not, that you're under. You are under the grace of God. That's where we are. Is that not incredible? For you are saved by grace. Grace, grace, God's grace. The grace of God is incredible. The reason I'm in Christ is because of the grace of God. The reason that I'm going to finish this race is because of the grace of God. The reason I've been given the Holy Spirit and I'm in Christ is because of the grace of God. The reason I've been given everlasting life is not because I somehow can attain to it, but it's because of the grace of God in my life. It's all about the grace of God in my life. You can't fall from something you're under. Can't do it. It can't happen. So he says, let me share something with you here, guys. For those of you in Rome, you need to understand something. If you understand something of the union you have with Christ and that what God has said of Christ, he has said of you. When God says not only did he call you, not only did he save you, redeem you, not did he do all those, he's also glorified you. That is past tense. It's already been done. Praise God for that. I'm so glad to know that he who began a good work in me, not I began a good work in me, I had nothing good in me. But he who began a good work in me will be faithful to complete it. And if God can't complete me, then nobody in this world could complete me. If God can't help me finish this race, then nobody could help me finish this race. 
If you think you can get there on your own accord, dear friend, you are deceived and you can try as hard as you may. You can do as many penance things as you want to. You can walk as many steps and miles and carry a cross around this globe. And let me tell you something, you'll still never get there. It's only by the grace and mercy of Almighty God that I'm in Christ Jesus. And because he is with the Father, I will be with him for all eternity where I will rule and reign with him. That is the truth of the doctrine of being in Christ. Man, isn't that incredible? I hope you can just get a hold of a little chunk of that meat and hang on to it. It is an amazing truth. So Paul says, now that you understand something of a union, and we're not going to get into this today in detail because we don't have time, but Paul speaks about a mystery. He speaks about a mystical union, and in Ephesians chapter 5, he relates this being in union with Christ to the same thing as a husband and wife being in union. See, what's really powerful about this covenant, we have to understand that Jesus Christ, he cut a new covenant. He made a new covenant with his own blood. And that this covenant that he has made, that I have been brought into by the grace and mercy of God, is an everlasting covenant is what it is. The same way marriage, which we don't even understand this. And my heart breaks for so many people because we don't understand what the Word of God teaches. And there's many Christian marriages today out there that do not understand anything of the covenant of marriage that God has designed. They don't understand it. It's far too powerful to even grasp when God says that He took a man and a woman and He said that these two will join together and become one flesh. That is a union. That is no longer two people being two. That is two people becoming one. And that God created man first. And he did something. He took something out of man. Literally took something from man. And fashioned from man a help meet. He made a woman. He no longer had it. God made this. And when the two come together in union, the man finally becomes one flesh again. Listen, without that union, there is no life. None. There can never be life without that union. There can never be spiritual life and newness of life without our union with Christ. Can't happen. I will always be lost. Man is seeking something. The only way that he ever can be complete and come to the knowledge of eternal life and life in general and to be set free from sin and become a slave to righteousness in Christ Jesus, the only way that happens is when he comes in union with the Savior of the world, the Creator of the world, the way that God designed for it to be. Think about the church. You know what we're called? The body of Christ. He placed us in the body, and we are one. One faith, one Lord, one baptism, one spirit. There's one. He says this union, if you understand it. See, to my wife, I am obligated solely to her 
for a lifetime. She's obligated not to any other man. No other man is she obligated to. She's obligated to me. Satan is such a liar. Man, he's a deceiver. And the truth about this, this, this covenant is that I am held to this covenant until what? Death. Only death separates me from my covenant with my wife. And I'm not going to get into it. You can do a little studying on your own. But this covenant is a beautiful picture when the world looks at a marriage, Christian marriage, as flawed as they are, because <laughs> every one of them are. And they look at a marriage that has made it through some of the most difficult things. And that's why these vows are said. I had a wedding last night. I got another wedding next week, weekend. Listen, when people are getting married, most of them don't even have a clue. That's why I do covenant marriage. So they'll understand what they're doing. When they say for better, for worse, for sickness and health and, and, and richer, for poor and all these things until death do we part. Do you know why those things are in there? Because in life, you will experience every single one of those in your marriage if you live to be an old man or woman. Every one of them. And the beautiful thing about a covenant is this. I know that even though Satan wants to wreck my marriage and he would love to wreck your marriage, I know this, that my God working in my life and my wife's life as we are together as one flesh and we do this journey called life, that my wife loves me today even if I'm not lovable. You know why she does that? Because she has made a covenant with God and she is committed to me and she'll love me even when I'm not lovable. I know that when I'm old and I got nothing to offer her anymore, barely do now. <laughs> do you know what I know? This is something that is so overwhelming to me when I look at my wife after 25 years of marriage and it wells up inside me. She has stuck with me through everything that we've gone through. And when I'm an old man, you all won't be by my bedside. She will be. And she will stay by me until I breathe my last breath. You know what that is? That's a picture to this world about this true, amazing, crazy, unbelievable, relentless love of God that will never let me go. Do you understand that? That when people look at my wife when I'm old and she's stuck with me through everything, they say, wow, now that was a commitment. Oh, no, that was a covenant. And when they stand here and do a funeral message for me or wherever I may be, they don't have to say anything about the goodness of John Riggs. They just got to brag about the greatness of my God who will never, ever let me go. That's why Paul can't refrain himself in chapter 8. Oh, he can't hold back. He just is overwhelmed with it. If God is for us, who can be against us, he says. Who did not spare his own son, but gave up his son for us all. He gave it all up. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Verse 37, he says, No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For Paul says, I'm not just thinking that I believe this. Paul says, I am convinced that neither death nor life there's not, death's not going to do this, life's not going to do it, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything in all creation. Listen to what Paul says. He can hardly sit down. In fact, I think he's standing up when he's saying this. 
He says, none of these things are going to be able to separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Is that not incredible? There's nothing in this world that will ever separate you from the love of God. He will keep you to the end. He will. That's the faithfulness of God. That's the covenant of God. That is being in Christ Jesus. I said, well, John, what do we do with sin? We'll have to talk about that next week. <laughs> Paul says you do this. You got an obligation. Not to the old girlfriend. I'm just giving you an illustration here. But my wife, she gets all me. She gets every ounce of me. She gets my mind. She gets my heart. She gets my soul. She gets everything. And she's the only person in this world that gets everything from me. My obligation is not to the gal I dated when I was 16, 18, 20. Not obligation there. Paul says you're not obligated to the flesh anymore because you died to that, man. You've been set free, remember? you got a new obligation. It's to God. Now he gets what? My heart, my mind, my hands, my mouth, my eyes. Now he gets it. I'm obligated to my Lord and my Savior. Does that make sense? Amen. Father God, Lord, thank you for this incredible truth. Oh, God, that we are in Christ. If there is anyone here this morning that they know they're not in Christ, but they hear and feel this reckless love and call of God right now in their life. Father, Lord, you're, you're, you're mighty to save, God. Oh, God, if you're drawing them right now, I ask that they just surrender their will to you. At this very moment, give you their very life so they can be in Christ who gives eternal life, who takes them from the kingdom of darkness, places them in the kingdom of the Son, who adopts them as a son or daughter, who have been freed of all condemnation, who stand before God holy and righteous because of Christ who have been given every spiritual blessing in Christ, who have been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Oh, and then on and on and on it goes. Thank you, God, for your salvation, your crazy, reckless love. Thank you for the covenant that you'll never break in your ever-keeping promise to those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Lord. As we celebrate freedom this week, for a nation, independence. Thank you, Lord, that we've been freed from the dominion of darkness, that we've died to that, but we've been brought into a relationship with the God of all creation, and we know what it means to truly be free. Thank you, Jesus, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. 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 You all have a fantastic week. Enjoy the fourth.